is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Unlockables podcast, the story of video games, the people who play them, and the memories made along the way. As always, I am your host. My name is Eric. I'd like to thank you so much for tuning in wherever, whenever in time and space you might be located. It means a lot to me that you're here checking out an episode of the Unlockables to see what I have to say about video games and what is going on. Before we begin today, I just want to take a second to plug the socials of the show. If you want to keep up with everything going on at the Unlockables podcast, head on over to linktr.ee forward slash Unlockables podcast. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow the show on Twitter. Follow the show on Instagram. Join our Discord server. It's filled with other video game podcasters who have fantastic shows and football season's about to start or will have started by the time this episode comes out. And we have a sports section for people in the video game community that like and are excited about football. So we're setting up some stuff there. We have a, a daily pickums going. We're going to see who can pick the best record of all the games uh, throughout the entire season. That's going to be a lot of fun. So if you want to be a part of that, it's linktr.ee forward slash unlockables podcast. And you can find all the links there. Now for today's episode, as you can probably see by the title, which is why you clicked on the episode to play it in the first place, right? Maybe you're interested about it. We are going to be talking about a game that I really loved when it first came out, and I kind of trailed off since I've stopped playing competitive games. And this is kind of a departure from what we normally do, what I normally do here at the show, because over the last couple of months, I've been doing a lot more specific pieces on games that I've been enjoying playing, Kingdom Hearts. I've done a couple of essay pieces on Final Fantasy, Mario RPG, uh, stuff like that. I had Brock on to interview for voice actors. So this is going to be a little bit different because I'm going to talk about something that's actually news adjacent, which is not something I often do on the show. But because it's about a game that I had a lot of love for and played a lot back when it came out, I kind of wanted to talk about it because it's interesting how we arrived at this point. And of course, we're going to be talking about Overwatch. This is going to be an off the top of my dome episode. I'm going to kind of ramble and wax poetically and just kind of share some thoughts on the state of Overwatch 2 and, and what's going on with all of that. So. Uh, we're going to take a break from the scripted pieces here and just kind of have a little bit of a freestyle conversation because I think what is happening to Overwatch 2 is fascinating because it's not something that has happened in the era of live service free-to-play games so far, and it's an interesting case study, so we're going to talk about that. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into our conversation about Overwatch Now, for those of you that don't know, just a little bit of background info on the original launch of Overwatch. It was developed and published by Blizzard Entertainment. It was released on May 24th, 2016, about two years after it was announced, after a incredible debut trailer that captured imaginations at BlizzCon. We'll touch on that in a little bit. Before I go any further, I just kind of want to talk about my experience because 
Overwatch was really the last game I played competitively where I would go online and play against people. That kind of style of game I've, I've shied away from. As I've gotten older, I just haven't had the same competitive drive to to go online and compete with people. But uh, Overwatch was a hero shooter where you pick a hero that has a certain defined class, such as DPS, tank, healer, and then you build a cohesive team that's balanced with all these different roles and you try to win the objective and defeat the other enemy team who has built a team and pick their roles to try and counter you. And there's a bunch of different game modes. We can go through all that stuff. There's push the payload. There were capturing points like King of the Hill style. So a game that was set up around teamwork and cooperation around capturing objective objectives rather than just killing the enemy and racking up the score. So it was a little bit of a different take from the multiplayer shooters that were dominating that era. This is kind of the tail end of like the Call of Duty, Deathmatch, Halo, you know, that style of shooter that had dominated since uh, Halo had come out, since Call of Duty 4 had come out. So Blizzard was trying to take this new direction with a shooter that was more kind of like a MOBA style game because a lot of the elements in Overwatch are similar to your MOBA games like League of Legends, Dota, Heroes of the Storms, where you're picking a team of six uh, composed of different roles. So that was kind of where that inspiration came from. And the, that was kind of the style of game and eSport that was was gaining popularity was was the MOBAs. I mean, League of Legends and Dota have tournaments with absolutely gigantic prize pools in the millions of dollars and uh viewership that rivals many uh, major American sports leagues. It's it's pretty insane. I've been following Overwatch since the beginning. I wouldn't call myself a Blizzard fanboy. I came into Blizzard's games much later in life. I think probably the first Blizzard game I ever played was was Diablo 3, if I if I can remember correctly, and then and then Overwatch. So I missed Diablo 1 and 2. I missed Warcraft. I never played World of Warcraft because an MMO would absolutely just destroy my life. I don't have time to play. Uh, and I, I mean, RuneScape consumed my life when I was younger, so I can't imagine what a paid MMO would, would do to my life. But I'm going to stay away from paid MMOs forever because I'm, I'm very obsessive when it comes to games like that. Diablo and Overwatch were really my first exposures to Blizzard, but I, I knew about the pedigree of Blizzard, right? That was kind of Legendary was was their polished games and, and their amazing worlds and stories that they would craft, right? Everybody in the industry knew about that. That's what caused Activision to purchase them in the first place. Blizzard had this pedigree of incredible storytelling, very high quality products. I mean, that's what Blizzard was known for. And it wasn't until the Diablo 3 fiasco where the, the chink in the armor kind of started to appear. But the launch of Overwatch was an overwhelming success it captured all of our imaginations with that first trailer with with winston and tracer fighting in the museum over the gauntlet against reaper and widowmaker and it promised this very you know as blizzard's other worlds were like you know dark and, and demons and warcraft and war and orcs and horde and magic and stuff and the first time we were introduced to the world of overwatch it was very colorful and tracer and winston were such fun characters and Widowmaker and Reaper seemed, you know, like these evil bad guys, but they weren't like this overwhelming force of of evil. There are obviously like two opposing sides here. And I think that captured a lot of people's attentions with just how colorful and creative the characters were compared to the rest of 
the roster of characters that, that Blizzard had created before. So needless to say, me and my college buddies, when the beta came out, we we dove into it. We were excited to play. I played with my cousin. I played with my friends. And we had a really, really great time playing in those initial beta phases and the initial launch of Overwatch. It was a lot of fun. It was something new. Everybody was on equal footing every day, every week. Somebody was figuring out some new team combination or new strats or you know, as people were learning the game, it was really the first time I had been part of a community like since the launch, except for Destiny. It really it was really the first time I'd been a part of like a multiplayer community at at the launch, like sharing information with people and uh, discovering things alongside the community. And it was a really polished game. It was really, really fast paced, but really fun to play. There was a variety of characters of different races and backgrounds and orientations and genders there were uh, the game launched with like 20 something heroes a lot of those heroes were were all different and distinct from one another so it was as opposed to playing like a modern military shooter where you're just you're just soldier man with gun in this game there were so many characters that were so different had so many different abilities that you could really find a character that you identified with, their story that you identified with, uh, their orientation and who they were, their kit, the way they played. There were so many ways to find a character that you identified with that it was unlike any shooter that had come out at the time. It, it did take a lot of inspiration from Team Fortress with the, the class-based kind of hero shooter system. But if I remember correctly with Team Fortress 2, I think there were only nine different classes you could pick from. Whereas, you know, in Overwatch, there were 20 different heroes that all did certain things like Tracer had this thing where in an experiment, she got like trapped in like a time uh, displacement type of thing. And she has the abilities where she can zip around the map really fast and actually travel back in time to a point where she was previously on the map that kind of plays into her backstory. Winston is a is a giant gorilla with with super intelligence and his kit kind of plays into that where like he has like a, a lightning cannon and a bubble shield. But when he pops his ultimate, he turns into this raging gorilla that just beats enemies around on the map. So there's just a lot of thought in the world, in the characters that Overwatch was presenting. And it captured a lot of people's imaginations. It was a huge hit right off the bat. And I loved experimenting with all the different characters. And I quickly found a few that I, I really, really gravitated towards normally when I played these types of games or played like class-based games I was pretty generic I would never stray off of like the standard like soldier guy with the assault rifle or um, standard knight who just would swing a sword or something like that but in playing the characters and watching streamers and seeing all the different ways the characters could be played I gravitated towards a couple mostly support uh, heroes to support characters, which isn't something I was normally comfortable with playing in multiplayer games. I wasn't comfortable being the support I wanted to be in the action, but I found my role in Overwatch to be that of a, of a support hero, and I really gravitated towards uh, Lucio, the, the DJ from, I believe he was Brazil, who used music and sounds to to heal and also speed up his his teammates. And I just found that the way Lucio played and he was on rollerblades and he could rollerblade on the walls and jump around and reach places and get to his teammates really fast. And he constantly let out a, a healing aura that could be switched over to a speed aura. So just the way he was able to impact the ebb and flow of battles and speed speed his teammates into, into fights, speed them out of there, heal them, constantly offer healing when there is a big team fight going on. 
I really, really loved his kit and the and the way that he played. Uh, I also really liked Diva. Diva was a uh, eighteen year old streamer from Korea, and she piloted a gigantic mech that what basically served as her tank uh, had a lot of hit points. She had a defense matrix that could absorb enemy attacks. She had constantly firing guns that were inaccurate from far away, but devastating when you close the gap. She had a booster that she could like activate and you give her like a boost of speed for like three seconds. And her most interesting part of her kit was when her robot's health ran out, it would blow up and she would pop out like the weak little diva that she is with less hit points, just run around and, her robot would cool down and if you survived as that small diva for until your cooldown ran out then you could resummon the robot and and enter the fight so there was a lot of really cool characters like that that played in so many different ways and i was able to find a couple in each role support dps tank that i really liked to play and normally i would like find one or two things i would like to do and stick with that but in overwatch i was able to find a couple of different ways and a couple of different roles with a couple of different characters that I really, really enjoyed playing. And this was really awesome because my friends and my college buddies who I normally played with every night found different characters that they liked. And our characters, we weren't all playing the same character and our characters would synergize together. And we actually like ended up becoming like a really good, good team with good communication in the, in the couple of years that we played. So that's just a little bit of introduction, introductory information on Overwatch, and the reason we're talking about this is because Overwatch 2 recently was added to Steam, and as of this recording, it is the most negatively reviewed game on Steam in the history of the platform with over 150,000 negative reviews. This game won Game of the Year in 2016 at the Game Awards when it came out, and now in 2023, Overwatch 2 launched the, the kind of like the relaunch, the rebrand to shift it more towards a free-to-play live service game, it is now the most negatively reviewed game on Steam in Steam's history. A stunning, a stunning, stunning fall from where Overwatch was not even a decade ago. And yes, it's it's been that long. It's, it's hard to believe. When Overwatch 1 came out, let's look at some of the review scores here. On Metacritic, it's sitting at a 91 for the PC, 90 for the PS4, 91 for the Xbox One, 73 on Switch. Understandable because the Switch has no business running this game. Uh, IGN gave it a 9.4 and their Game of the Year award. GameSpot gave it a 9 out of 10. Game Informer gave it a 10 out of 10. Polygon gave it an 8 out of 10. EGM gave it a 9 out of 10. And GamesRadar gave it 4.5 out of 5 stars. High 90s on Metacritic. Game of the Year from IGN. 10 out of 10 Game Informer. Critical acclaim across most of the major outlets. As I said, it won the IGN Game of the Year in 2016. It was the Game Awards Game of the Year in 2016. It won three awards at the 2016 Golden Joystick Awards for Best Gaming Moment, Best Original Game, Best Multiplayer Game. It won a BAFTA Award in 2017 for the Best Multiplayer Game. It is the 29th Best Game of All Time on a Game Informer poll in 2018. It was the Game of the Year at the 20th Annual Dice Awards in 2017. And this is just a handful of examples as it continued to rack up awards for the next several years. I won a couple of best ongoing multiplayer games, I believe, at the Game Awards and a couple others. So it was a critical and commercial success. It was a juggernaut when it came out. The commercial numbers back that up. 
let me say this with the asterisk. Uh, these numbers are subject to speculation because Blizzard doesn't always report their numbers faithfully uh, or they're not always released to the public. But this was the information I was able to find. There were an estimated 7 million players reported a week from launch date. 7 million. And this game was sold for $60. So 7 million people bought this game a week from launch date. Very impressive. Uh, it was There was an estimated 60 million players by April 2021. In a Q1 financial report for 2017, Blizzard reported that the revenue from Overwatch alone exceeded $1 billion, which was the eighth Blizzard property to achieve such a feat. In 2016, it was reported that Overwatch overtook League of Legends as the most played game in a majority of overseas South Korean PC bangs where people get together and play games on PC. League of Legends is enormous in South Korea, and Overwatch overtook League as the most played game in these, in these PC bangs. According to a report by Bloomberg in August 2022, Overwatch had sold 50 million units making it, at the time of this episode, the 10th highest-selling game of all time, according to an IGN list. 10th highest of all time. Of all time. Out of all video games. 10th highest-selling. So, Overwatch was a smash success for Blizzard from the moment it came out. Blizzard also launched the Overwatch League. They were not shy about their esports ambitions. They wanted Overwatch to be an esport from the start. They launched their own league, the Overwatch League. It secured 12 teams for its inaugural 2018 season, where each team entrance fee cost approximately $20 million. And there were some crazy people that invested in this. I believe Robert Kraft invested in the Boston team, owner of the New England Patriots. Like, insane. Absolutely insane. Uh, old man doesn't even know what video games are. I bring him to be like, hey, this is going to be huge. Invest in it. And Robert Kraft's like, yeah, whatever. I'm paying Tom Brady. Or I'm not paying Tom Brady anymore. Here's here's money. Or whenever Tom Brady left the Patriots, I don't know. Well, the Overwatch League was initially successful. It, it had really, really good streaming views, ratings, all that stuff its first year. It's really struggled in recent years. It, viewership has fallen way below what League and Dota and some of those bigger MOBAs uh, carry every single year. And I'm sure COVID-19 had an impact on that as well with the ability to travel. The first season, they played all the matches in the same Blizzard arena. And the later years, they wanted to do like a traditional sports thing where like the teams would travel to the city to play the home teams or whatever. I think that's a bad slash stupid way to to run a, a video game league. But I digress. The numbers haven't been there for the Overwatch League since that first season. It's just it's not been I feel like it's been a slow death. Still around. And then we had the a couple years after the initial launch of Overwatch, we got the big Overwatch 2 bomb, right? They were going to release a sequel to Overwatch that would keep the main game, the main multiplayer intact. They were just going to update some of the visuals, uh, you know, just do some work like that. They weren't going to like redo everything completely. Uh, the big addition to Overwatch 2, though, was going to be they're going to add a story mode, a PvE mode that would finally flesh out the world a little bit more via gameplay because Overwatch was primarily a multiplayer shooter. It had this really rich story, this really rich 
you know, that utilize all these these characters where it was like an AI took over and created all these robots and Overwatch was founded to like stop this robot AI uprising from like destroying the world. And all these different characters from all these different walks of life, all these different countries kind of like banded together to to prevent this from happening. And so the story was really compelling, but it wasn't being told through gameplay because the multiplayer was the focus. It was being told in different types of media. They had like online web comics, they had comics, they had animated shorts for when they released new characters. They had little movies sprinkled here and there, little trailers that would like give you little tidbits of information but it wasn't being told in a traditional gameplay way. And people were really ravenous for the story. They, they wanted more. They loved the animated shorts. They loved the comics and the eBooks and all that stuff that that blizzard put out that they, they ate that up and the story is really fascinating. So the big draw for overwatch two to put this out was to add that PVE component and tell a story of basically the, 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 the crux of the present time of Overwatch is the, the AI uprising had passed, but there was a new threat on the horizon. And Winston, who was a member of Overwatch, the, the intelligent gorilla, was like monitoring the world by himself. And he senses he, he, he's like getting alerts and like there's some kind of something's happening. And so he decides to reunite the old Overwatch team to because it was disbanded by the government after the uprising because it couldn't be trusted. It was running some like shady tactics. You know, pol there's politics and stuff too. So it was a really deep story. And we were finally going to get that fleshed out story of what happened when over when Winston reunited Overwatch. And that was kind of like the story going forward. It was going to be slightly different from the multiplayer aspect. And we're going to talk about, obviously, this did not go as planned because Overwatch 2 is now the most negatively reviewed game on Steam. So... Let's just go through that information, the information for Overwatch 2. It was developed and published by Blizzard Entertainment, obviously. It released on August 10th of 2022. Scores, not as good. Metacritic, it's sitting at a 79 on PC, 78 for PS5 and Xbox Series X. Game Informer still gave it a 9 out of 10. GameSpot, 8 out of 10. IGN, 8 out of, 8 out of 10. Uh, PC Gamer gave it a 74 out of 100. The Guardian gave it 4 out of 5 stars. So... Still pretty decent scores. It's not the critical acclaim that Overwatch 1 had. And unlike its predecessor, it doesn't really have any, it hasn't really picked up any awards since like the Overwatch 2 relaunch. In terms of like commercial success, we don't really have a lot of those numbers either. The big change was it was shifted from to a free-to-play. So they weren't charging money for Overwatch 2, especially if you already bought it, but they were just going to charge for cosmetics battle passes and stuff like that. But the base experience would, would basically be free. Uh, when Overwatch 2 launched, over 35 million people returned to play Overwatch 2 when it released, hoping that there was something new, but that fervor faded pretty fast. I mean, people were, the, the fan base is passionate, so they came back hoping that this would be something new, something fresh. Now, here, it, it, here we are. It went from game of the year to the most negatively reviewed game on Steam, 150,000 plus negative reviews and, and climbing. It might even be more at the time of this episode launch. What happened here? What went wrong? Why did this sudden decline happen? And there's there's a, a lot of things. I, 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 th I don't think you can pin. I don't think you can point the finger at any one thing specifically, but I think there's a combination of things that happened from changing industry trends to self-inflicted wounds to the culture 
the famously toxic culture that was exposed at Blizzard. We'll just kind of walk through some of those things and I'll give some of my thoughts about this game that I used to love and now I just don't really care because it's become a soulless husk of itself. But more importantly, I think this is an interesting case study in terms of live service games because live service games are really like a product of the last 10 years or so, right? We had this DLC model that was prevalent from like the late 2000s to the mid 2010s. And then this live service thing started to happen where it was like, keep your game online, update it with seasonal content, don't charge for DLC, but like charge for battle pass, cosmetics, and League of Legends and Fortnite really pushed the the industry in that direction. And mobile games did as well because mobile games adopted that gotcha, pay money for jewels, for premium currency, for draws and stuff like that. Mobile games really, and, and the video game industry saw how much money people were making on these live service mobile games and League of Legends, all that stuff. And they're like, oh, well, we this needs to start. This needs to start happening. And uh, Fortnite and League of Legends were really the ones that like figured it out first. So Overwatch originally launched as you paid $60 for the game. And the only microtransactions in it were to get cosmetic loot boxes that would give you skins, emotes, sprays, stickers, you know, stuff like that. Stuff you can customize your character with. And they made a lot of money off that. 1 billion in the first in like the first quarter and it was very successful and then it shifted to this lives is like it was almost like a live service model light and then it shifted to this live service model because overwatch was out before fortnite before apex legends before warzone before these battle royale games got popular and it held its own against them for a while but now some of these have established themselves as the go-to games and Overwatch tried to pivot and the pivot didn't quite work. So we have this interesting case study in of this live service game that was game of the year. And we've kind of seen this slow like decay of said live service game over time. Whereas most of the time a live service game will come out and not be able to compete with the big ones, the war zones, the Fortnites, and just die a couple months later because everybody wants to have a, a live service game. But Overwatch is really the first time where we've seen this kind of fall from grace where a really good product came out. And then as it went live service, it's just slowly, slowly, slowly withered away. It's really the first one of its kind that we have like that. At least that I can remember. I'm sure somebody will mention in the comments or something that, a game came out and this happened, but this is probably the most high profile one. I mean, just imagine if Fortnite was in the same point as, is overwatch right now, where it was like, they, they launched a year later. It was really high, you know, Ninja and the hype around Fortnite and celebrities playing Fortnite. And then, and then it just kind of decays till now, like that didn't happen obviously. So I just think it's an interesting case and we're going to go through it. this game had a strong start that's what we talked about in the previous section and i like many people who got into overwatch remember that original cinematic debut trailer 
from BlizzCon 2014, where it told the story of Overwatch's world, a world destroyed by the Omnicrisis, AI run rampant, and the heroes of Overwatch who rose up to stop it. We see two children in the museum honoring the heroes of Overwatch when a fight breaks out, debuting Tracer and Winston for Team Overwatch, and Reaper and Widowmaker on the opposing team, the opposing organization, Talon. And this game just... It's amazing because it had so much going for it. It originally came out of the failed Blizzard MMO shooter project called Titan that had been in development for seven years and was a brand new Blizzard IP. It was the first brand new Blizzard IP this uh, of, the, of the 2000s, essentially. It was helmed by former Blizzard VP Jeff Kaplan, who gained notoriety as part of the World of Warcraft team. And Jeff Kaplan would go on to be the face of Overwatch for like the first three or four years of of its existence. He would always do the developer update videos. He would announce new heroes. He was essentially the Masahiro Sakurai of Overwatch. And the community grew to to love and, and hinge on every word he said. And he would always do a good job of communicating with the community. And Kaplan was originally in charge of the Titan project too. So Kaplan's been working on, was working on this specific project in its original form, Titan, before those assets got reused and morphed into Overwatch. Like I said, it featured a diverse cast of colorful characters with different nationalities, genders, backgrounds, sexual orientations, launched with over 20 heroes, and there were just so many characters for people to identify with and gravitate towards just because they're all so different and they all have different personalities and you could find one that you like that you identified with this game was out before the battle royale craze so really before fortnite changed the industry forever this game came out a year before and people kind of felt like this was the direction it was going uh fortnite didn't drop till 2017 PUBG dropped in 2017 apex legends in 2019 warzone in 2020 so by the time warzone came out and the industry was kind of set on fortnite apex and warzone that's kind of the big three Overwatch came out and was very successful. And as I noted before, it was the shift away from the standard deathmatch model of of shooter. So all of these things culminated in this near critical acclaim game of the year. And they did a really good job of supporting it. You could expect two here. They they average roughly two heroes a year to add to a game and they would constantly tweak and change up the meta. They would drop new, new story elements all the characters would get animated launch trailers. They would hide little teasers in the multiplayer games. Like the Sombra reveal was still to this day one of my favorite Easter egg hunts slash. And that might be a story for another time. The, the Sombra reveal was a like this Easter egg hunt. And they hid little hints in, in the maps and the levels. And it was just it was so cool. And every time Kaplan would show up to announce a new character, similar to how Sakurai did in Smash Bros., So the content was there for the first couple of years. They added new maps, new characters, new modes. They they ran special. uh, Every year they had a Halloween event called Junkenstein's Revenge where some of the characters would get repurposed and it was this wave mode where you had to fight off uh, like undead zombie robots and fight some of the heroes as like evil Halloween versions of themselves. So they did a lot of events and did a lot of cool things. They even had some story events that talked about like Tracer's first mission or... uh, talked about black watch which is like the the stealth special ops uh, portion of overwatch that did like the gritty off the book stuff that nobody really wanted to talk about so they they did a good job of 
having like these special events that were different from the multiplayer that kind of fleshed out the world. They had a Chinese New Year event, Christmas, um, you know, most major holidays. When the Olympics rolled around, they had like an, an Olympic Games event. Uh, Lucio Ball was one where it was basically like Lucio, like Rocket League, but you were playing with the character Lucio. So there was content there to keep people engaged. So as I was going through reading about this story, gathering notes and kind of crafting the idea for this episode, I kept coming back to three key things that I think happened that really kind of derailed Overwatch's momentum. And we'll go over them here briefly. The first thing, I think probably the biggest thing that actually kind of halted all of Blizzard's momentum and was kind of the catalyst for the the Xbox Activision Blizzard merger here was the Blizzard sexual harassment scandal, which happened in 2021. Uh, you guys probably remember that story. In 2021, California filed a lawsuit against Blizzard after a two-year investigation. Uh, they accused it of fostering a frat kind of bro culture that would include uh, what they called perverse cube crawls, where male coworkers would go from cubicle to cubicle of female coworkers and get drunk, go to their cubicles and harass them. And then obviously the big one that got reported was the suicide of a female Blizzard employee while on a work trip with a male supervisor. That kind of th story really exploded in 2021 and led to some walkouts. Momentum really kind of halted on everything that Blizzard was doing. And rightfully so, because if you don't have a, a safe work environment, uh, where you can perform your work. If somebody fucking died because of this, video games don't matter in the, in the grand scheme of things at all. So this led to the departure of several high-profile leads uh, throughout the company, including Diablo 4 lead Jesse McCree, who the character of McCree in Overwatch was named after, so they changed his, to change his name to, to Cassidy, I believe it was. Uh, WoW designer Jonathan LeCraft, lead game designer Corey Stockton were a couple of the few really high-profile departures. Bobby Kotick, who was the CEO when all of this went down at the time, still inexplicably works at Activision Blizzard despite all of this that happened. All this happened basically under his watch, and he was he's I think he's staying on until the 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 merger between Activision and Blizzard, it, Activision and Xbox is done. I, I think he's gonna be there. I would hope that Xbox wouldn't want to keep him on in any kind of deal. He'll probably walk away with millions of dollars despite having fostered this company called I mean the buck stops at the top right I mean leadership is is top down and if if the top if this happens if you're the top guy and somebody fucking dies and kills themselves at your company because they're being harassed on your watch you have to take responsibility for that you can't keep your high paying job and keep getting millions of dollars when somebody is dead if you're the leader of that company that's probably another topic for a different episode but that's just all I'm saying uh, so this massive upheaval, like I said, happened during Overwatch 2's development. We talked about Jeff Kaplan a little bit earlier in the episode, the voice and the face of Overwatch. During, it was just before all of this came out that Jeff Kaplan, who had been the, the head, basically the director, the, the head designer, the leader of the Overwatch team at Blizzard, and he was the voice and face of Overwatch for the fans. He did all the videos and stuff. Uh, he left Blizzard in 2021 just before this story kind of broke and let me be clear that doesn't mean that he was like running or hiding from anything that he participated in he was cleared he was not mentioned in any of this uh i think he probably just got out because 
either he like couldn't in good conscience be like associated with Activision Blizzard Blizzard anymore and just wasn't happy with like the direction everything was going. I mean, Activision Blizzard knew something was happening because California investigated this for two years before they they dropped this lawsuit on him. So maybe Kaplan was just like, I, you know, it can't in good conscience like be a part of this anymore and left. We're not really sure. He hasn't really said uh, he just said that he was leaving the Overwatch team and it was left in the hands of Aaron Keller, I believe it was name of the gentleman. Might be wrong. Might have double checked that, but I don't know. We'll leave it in the episode and uh, to keep me honest. This happened right in the middle of Overwatch 2's development. And then a couple months later, the, you know, the Xbox Activision Blizzard merger begins. And so all that momentum that Overwatch 2 was building and going towards this, this new game in this PvE mode kind of got stopped. And what ended up happening is, and, and the directors and the, and the team leaders around Overwatch kind of came out and said this, was that they spent so many resources working on Overwatch 2 that the content for Overwatch 1 kind of just slowed to a drip. There wasn't as many new story contents. There weren't any new heroes for a while. They weren't keeping the game fresh and updated, and it just kind of allow, was allowed to sit there and stagnate as its competitors like Fortnite, Apex Legends, Warzone gained momentum. Overwatch just sat there while they were waiting for this Overwatch 2 for several years. Something else I think that hurt the game overall is the esports scene that they tried to build around it. And this ended up creating like the hero meta. And those of you that play competitive games know that a meta is like the established like best strategy like you have to play these heroes to be successful or like this is the quote-unquote best strategy to like win games that came out of the the esports movement and from the very beginning blizzard had massive esports ambitions for overwatch i've mentioned in earlier in the episode the overwatch league in 2017 one year after the game's release at this time again like i mentioned esports games like league of legends counter-strike had become huge with prize pools of millions and millions of dollars and viewership numbers that were starting to rival professional sports in America. Like some of these esports tournaments were getting more views than your average like basketball or, or baseball game. Probably not more than NFL because the NFL is a ratings juggernaut. Blizzard felt like Overwatch was differentiated enough from the other shooters by being colorful uh, with its cast of heroes and specifically designed it for this kind of like pro competition in mind. As years went on, the league struggled to gain traction because other games came out and started sucking up a lot of the oxygen in the room, Fortnite, Apex, stuff like that. When Overwatch first came out, I would say it was manageable to learn. There were 20 heroes. There was a lot of experimenting, but, you know, 20 heroes is is pretty easy to kind of wrap your head around. But as they start to add more heroes, and more characters, the game becomes more complex with more heroes countering other heroes and team composition really, really started to matter, especially when you got into the higher ranks of like the competitive ranked mode, right? Where you're trying to attain those higher ranks. Adding one character to a roster of 20 can change the way the game plays completely. So it was a really big deal when they were adding a character to the roster because you would know without the help of thousands of hours of playtime from players if the new character's abilities would like unfairly 
augment other characters in a specific team setting, some of those abilities might be really, really strong in a, a team composition of a, a really specific team composition. So the composition of your team started to matter more and more. And this, especially in the early couple of years, created so much conversation around the meta, the composition of heroes that people were playing. And since the pros were all streaming, since Overwatch League was streaming, the meta became defined by what the pro players were playing. Now, the problem with this is that that's the what the pros are playing. The That's the pro meta. And the pro meta is drastically different than the common man's meta because the level and skill of a pro player is so far and beyond that of just the regular person that plays for an hour or two or a couple hours every night. Pros practice multiple heroes every single day, like eight hours a day, and they practice specific situations, specific team comps, countering specific team comps. So the strategies that the pros are employing require a high degree of difficulty and a high degree of hero mastery to be able to pull off. But people don't seem to know that, recognize that. So this pro meta started to like leak into the competitive and even into like your regular modes, like quick play, where it was just supposed to be you could play whatever you want. And the toxicity in the community really started to build because you couldn't go a match without like, let's say you go into quick play and you want to play your favorite character. And then, you know, everyone, there would at least be like one person in, in, in a handful of matches that would be like, you need to switch. This is the comp we need to run. You need to switch off this. You need to switch off that. It would just be very bossy and very toxic. And it's like, bro, you're in quick play. Like, yes, we understand like you want to win, but quick play is supposed to be just like, a quick like game that doesn't mean anything. You can pick up and play whatever hero you want. I understand in ranked in a in a competitive mode where that matters a little more. Maybe trying to be more strategic with your team in picking heroes and being like, "Hey, I don't like that you're playing Widowmaker. Maybe could you, would you be able to play one of these heroes to fit this significant role instead?" But people were just becoming really shitty about it. That if you were just not playing like the specific meta or just if you weren't going to pick something that didn't fit into the way that they wanted to play, they would just like leave matches. They would just like be really abusive, just be really toxic. And I think that really kind of hurt the game because it's a game about picking whatever hero you want and being able to identify with that hero, that character because of who that character is. But now because this meta exists, people are trying to force you into playing this like specific way and not everybody wanted to play in that specific way. And it caused a lot of animosity. It caused some, I, I personally, when I, back when I was streaming the game, uh, like, first couple of years after it came out, the, a couple of those later years in, in competitive and ranked was really, really incredibly toxic. And it's just made the game just not fun to play. The meta of pros is not the meta of the common people their pros for a reason you cannot judge and build your strategy around the strategy of people who are on a team of six playing this game for eight hours a day every single day practicing every single day playing every single day of their lives getting paid to do that when you only have a couple hours after work like it's not it's not comparable it's it's not it's like trying to it's like asking a high school football team to run nfl style offense it's just it's not possible Thirdly, and I think the biggest thing that most people were disappointed in was kind of the tipping point and probably the most recent thing on people's minds when the game went up on Steam was the single player promises were scrapped 
and the focus fully shifted to this live service style of game so that Blizzard could make money. Overwatch 2 was announced in 2019 at BlizzCon, and it featured overhaul visuals for multiplayer mode as, as well as new heroes. But the main draw, the main buzz was around the highly anticipated single player mode that would tell the story of this game that people were were just basically starving for at this point. We're starving for for content. They wanted this lore and we hadn't gotten it for several years because of this whole thing. And we wouldn't get it for several more years because of the whole thing with the Blizzard lawsuit. And they were basically had everybody all hands on deck trying to get Overwatch 2 out the door. That was a big promise that a lot of people were excited for. And because they had so many people working on it, the content for Overwatch 1, like I said above, basically trickled to to nothing. And Blizzard even admitted that in 2022, that they focused too many resources on Overwatch 2 and didn't support the original game until the, the refresh. Overwatch 2 at this point is basically a refresh. It's not a sequel or a new game in, in any kind of way. They decided to launch the PvP mode first. They promised the PvE content would come later, but that wouldn't come to pass. Basically, a year later, they scrapped the PvE idea together. They said that they couldn't really get what was happening in PvE to jive with the PvP, the competitive, which was the basic mode that Blizzard was relying on to to make money. So this was really upsetting to a lot of people because if the PvE mode would have come out, I came back to Overwatch 2 for about a week and then I was just like, yeah, I'm not really feeling this and I bounced off of it. If the PvE mode had come out, I would have come back and paid for that and played it because I was interested in the story. I was interested in characters. I was really curious to see how they were going to translate these characters into a single player experience. And it just seems like they either wouldn't commit more resources to doing that or just couldn't figure out how to make that happen. Regardless of what it was, this upset a lot of fans. And then what they announced was that they would release like these PVP kind of like mission type things they did in the first game that would expand on the lore uh, for $15. So just asking people for to pay more money to get a lesser version of, of what was promised. And so I think that was kind of the breaking point. And so when the game went up on Steam, a lot of people saw their opportunity to voice their displeasure with the direction that the game was going. Because when... Overwatch 2 lived on Blizzard's launcher, right? The Battle.net launcher. That's where all their games were located. That's how you played the game. The Battle.net launcher doesn't have any kind of like internal review system that allows people to leave reviews and leave comments the way that Steam does. So Overwatch 2 was largely insulated from criticism on Battle.net. And they could just chalk it up to, oh, that's just people, you know, being loud on the Internet, on Twitter. Like, that's what people do. But when the game was put on Steam, Steam is really the the great equalizer. No game is safe on Steam from people who want to leave a review. I, I don't think there are any requirements for people to leave reviews on Steam. I just think you have to have like a Steam account and have purchased some games before. And I think you can leave a review if you get the game. So since it was free to play, you could arguably just download it and leave a review. And the people who did that were longtime Overwatch fans voiced their opinion very loudly and said that, hey, we don't like the direction this game is going. It feels very predatory, whereas once it used to feel like a very promising story of inclusion and diversity, now it just feels like something you're trying to squeeze every last dollar from your player base. And the fans weren't happy. And that's ultimately what led it to be the number one 
most negatively reviewed game on Steam ever with over 150,000 negative. I don't know if it's 150,000 negative reviews total. There's 150,000 plus reviews on there, which Steam games are categorized by like they're mostly positive, positive, mixed reviews, negative, or like overwhelming, overwhelmingly negative. The game is rated overwhelmingly negative. A majority of those 150,000 plus reviews are probably negative, and it's not really a great look for the game. I know the developers in Blizzard will come out and say, you know, it doesn't really matter. We hear our community, blah, 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 but like that does matter. Reviews matter to the video game community, to the people that play video games. I preach on my show that I don't really trust reviews that much, but to the common every man video game player who doesn't have a podcast or doesn't make content or it just comes home and plays video games at night to unwind, reviews matter to them. So if you're hoping to get new people to just stumble across Overwatch on the Steam store and they see that it's got overwhelmingly negative as its rating with 150,000 reviews, that's just not that's not a good look. The optics are just not great on that. So it was the one way that players could voice their displeasure with the direction of the game. And you should be able to do that. As, as a player, if, if a game you're playing is asking you for money, you should have the right to voice your concerns with the direction or give the, give the company feedback. And this was one of the only ways that the player base could do that. And they did so uh, very aggressively. And I think if you want to put a silver... I think if you want to put a silver lining around it, I think the one thing you can say is because there were so many reviews that were negative, uh, so many, like a hundred, I've never seen a game with more reviews on Steam than this one. There's so many. I think that speaks to the fact that there's still a big community of people who really do love Overwatch still or did love it and have bemoaned what it has become. I'm in the later camp. I didn't leave a negative review, but I really love that game. And then once the Overwatch 2 stuff started, it just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And I, I basically left the community behind. I think there's still a lot of us who would like to see this game return to its former glory with a lot of, without a lot of the, the predatory stuff. And maybe for Blizzard to make some kind of an effort to give us that single player, that PVE promise that was made. I just, I don't know. Maybe when Activision is merged with Xbox, maybe Xbox can make that call. I don't know. I wouldn't hold my breath for it. This is probably just going to be what the state of Overwatch is going to be going forward. And you still get some buzz every time a new hero is announced. So it's not like this game is completely devoid of life. There are people who still like this game. There are people who still play this game. It still does a decent amount of streams and views on Twitch. But it's clearly not the same as it once was. And it went from being a 2016 game of the year to, in 2023, the most negatively reviewed game on Steam. And that is quite quite a, a fall. I don't know if you'd completely call it a fall, but that's, that's quite a... If somebody told me after Overwatch won Game of the Year in 2016 that it would be the most negatively reviewed game on Steam seven years later, I would probably laugh at you. And I'm not making that distinction between Overwatch 1 and 2 because Overwatch 2 is basically a relaunched Overwatch 1. They just use the the 2 as like an excuse to refresh it and add this live service battle pass model into the game. There's a lot of factors that go into this rather than just people think this game sucked. There's a reason as to why 
people think this game suck or why, why they're voicing their displeasure by leaving negative reviews on Steam. There's always a context in terms of why these things are happening. It's not just, oh, this sucks because bad. There's context to every story, to positives, to negatives. And I think that context is important to truly understanding what is happening and why it's happening. And I hope that this context that I've given you about some of the stuff that's been happening with Overwatch since its launch make the picture a little more clearer. I don't know if I have succeeded in that, but I hope I've at least been able to arm you with a little more information from a person who used to be pretty heavily involved with the Overwatch community and played that game for hundreds, if not thousands of hours. I mean, I've reached platinum for several ranked seasons in a row. So I was, that's kind of like the middle tier between like the, the bad, the lower ranks and the higher ranks. So I was, I was a decent player. I knew how to communicate and call out. Uh, I knew how to take advantage of the maps. I knew what my role was on the team. So I have a little bit of, I feel like I have a little bit of credence to like talk about these things because it's just something that I just wouldn't have expected it six years ago. It's, it's truly fascinating. So I guess to wrap up this episode and wrap up my random quick ramblings, I do have some major concerns for the survivability of this game going forward. I don't doubt that it would ever disappear because it's Blizzard. I think if anyone could find a way to turn it around and save it, Blizzard would be able to, and they've made a lot of money off this IP. I don't think they're just going to walk away from it. But I do have some concerns going forward. And first of all, my major concern is this is an industry trend. This isn't just an Overwatch thing. The industry has figured out that these live service games, if you can make a hit live service game, they are incredibly lucrative. It's way more cost effective to make a game that you can keep perpetually online and updating with content every few months and keep people playing and spending money than printing a single player adventure on a disc and charging $70 for it and maybe some DLC down the road. Well, there will always be a place in video games for that type of model. It's clear that the big boys, the big AAA boys really, really want that marquee live service game that can give them a continual stream of revenue. And just look at the games that have come out since Overwatch launched in 2016, and they've, they've been successful, and they've really sucked up all the air in the room. Fortnite, Apex Legends, Warzone, uh, PUBG, but that's kind of like to a lesser extent, that game has kind of, kind of died. And the problem with live service games is they, they really have this incentive to keep their players playing all the time. They want to be that the only game that players play all the time. And for a significant portion of video game players, I just want to remind the people in our podcast community, we tend to be a little bit insulated because in the podcast community, we play so many different types of games. So we have stuff to talk about on our shows. We want to experience so many different types of video game experiences. But to majority of people who play video games, they're only playing like Warzone, or they're only playing Fortnite, or they'll play Warzone and they'll pick up like NBA 2K and Madden and FIFA and just play like those four games. And that is it. I think Jim Ryan said, uh, as much as I hate quoting Jim Ryan, I thought I saw him say in an article that they track what people play on their PlayStations, obviously. And there were over a million people who only play Call of Duty on their PlayStation. That was it for that year. They didn't play anything else. They just played Call of Duty. So there's a significant portion of people who 
think that video gaming is just playing Call of Duty or just playing that live service game or just playing Madden or NBA 2K. We saw this happen with Ubisoft too, right? These hit live service games came out and Ubisoft wanted one so bad. They put all their eggs in this basket. They wanted to make like a live service Assassin's Creed thing. They tried to make some like futuristic, like Hyperscape, I think it was called, like shooter that lasted like six months. They're working on X Defiant. I don't know if that came out yet, but that's another like hero-based kind of live service shooter game. Ubisoft really, really wanted one of those. But the problem is when you have so many big live service games that are basically demanding all of your time, you cannot play all of them in a, I mean, you could, but you're not going to be able to keep up with the stream of content if you're jumping back and forth between four or five live service games. It's just, it's not possible because the live service game in question wants you to play that game and that game alone to extract the most money from you. And I think that is just an interesting, I don't know if we're seeing the maturation of a live service model yet. I think it's certainly exiting its infancy and getting into the point where it's more stable. And as these big games cement their staying power, it's going to be harder for other games to to break into the market that utilize that model. That's why Sony wants one of these games so bad. They're, they're making a big push, to, and that's why they brought Bungie on to make some kind of live service shooter game because they did the live service thing with Destiny, which, by the way, Destiny is one of the only example, successful examples of that model being developed for like a single player ish experience kind of, but that's a story for another time. So that's why PlayStation really wants one of these to kind of like keep the lights on, keep money coming in constantly because triple a video games are incredibly expensive to make. I mean, just, just think about the ballooning costs of these huge cinematic spectacles that, that PlayStation puts out your God of wars and stuff like that where the teams have 300, 400 people working on them, where they're in development for like five to six years, where their budgets, not counting marketing, are exceeding like $200 million, which is more than like big budget action Marvel movies cost to make. So the cost of AAA video games is very quickly becoming just unsustainable. And in a industry as unpredictable as video games where you have to put out a hit game or your studio shuts down. That's a lot of pressure. So of course, all these big guys want this live service game that they can keep a constant flow of money coming in and allow these other projects to kind of mature without having to like just kill these studios that stumble once or twice. I think one of the major problems too is Overwatch is getting more complicated. Like I said, when it launched 20 heroes, that was easy to kind of pick up and learn. You just play with a bunch of heroes and you understand how they interact with each other. But as you add more heroes, we see this with League of Legends. And it's part of the reason why, you know, when I was younger, I tried to play League of Legends. I wanted to play with my friends who were all playing. But I just found League so intimidating because there were over 100 champions. And League had the added layer of difficulty of, like, building items on top of your champions to, like, augment their stats. And I just, like, I'm like, how do you devote the time to, like, learning all these champions and learning what each one does and knowing, like, which picks counter which champions and how your team synergy works. And, and and on top of like the right way to play the game on the summoner's rift, it's just, it's so complicated and so intimidating for a first time player to jump onto that kind of game. And overwatch is approaching that point as they approach like the 30, 40 character barrier. 
a person jumping into Overwatch 2 for the first time is going to have a much steeper learning curve than a person that jumped in when it started because everyone was kind of on equal footing. Everyone was like trying to figure out what all these heroes do. But now the people that are remaining there to play this game know what these characters do very well. And it's kind of very firmly established which characters do well against certain characters. It's going to take you time to learn all that, which means you're not just going to be good right off the bat. And I think that might be a turnoff for some people who are like joining to, to like try this out. And just all the changes they've made to worry me that how egregious the free to play live service model is. And the biggest change happened a couple years ago. They switched the game from being 6v6 to 5v5, which completely changes the way the game plays. And they have like certain defined roles you can have on teams now. So they really kind of like limited and restricted the expression of play by making one less spot on a team and kind of more seriously defining the roles and how many roles you can have on on each team. So, yeah, it's just there's a lot of things that concern me about the long term viability of Overwatch. I don't think it'll completely collapse, but and who knows, it might. And this might be the first kind of case study in this live service model era where we have a decline of a major live service game that was a huge success and just kind of died off. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the scenario that we're in right now. I just imagine if Fortnite had launched in 2017 and now is kind of just would just like petered off to nothingness. Fortnite is still incredibly relevant. So I think there are a lot of questions around Overwatch. I think there are a lot of questions around the viability of how many live service games the market can sustain. And those are going to be questions that are going to be answered going forward because I feel like we're kind of in a time of transition in the video game industry with the relevance of live service models, cloud gaming, you know, we're transitioning into the future and a new way to be able to play and experience games. So we'll have to see kind of how that shakes out and see if the industry can figure out what is a sustainable way to make bigger games, to make live service games without them feeling predatory. There's just, there's a lot of things in the industry that need to work themselves out. So we'll have to see, we'll keep an eye on Overwatch and see how it does in the future going forward. But that is going to be all for this episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and to listening to some of my ramblings. I hope it provided a little bit of insight as to what's going on and just maybe you like to hear me talk about a game that I don't normally talk about very often, but I have a lot of experience with because I used to play it a lot. If you like what you heard from the show, like I said at the top, you can go to linktr.ee forward slash unlockables podcast. You can find all the social media links there. You can find the link to the Discord server, TikTok, all that fun stuff. I make short little TikToks now. I put them on my TikTok page, which is at unlockablespod on TikTok. And I just kind of tell stories about interesting video game things that I learn, reading books, doing research, just reading about random tidbits, factoids. Uh, my goal for the Unlockables podcast is to tell the story of video games, and that is in any format. So I tell longer stories and I ramble longer on the podcast format. And then I tell little like one to three minute stories over on TikTok, just about interesting things that I find throughout the my day, throughout the week, maybe touch on a little bit of news things that are happening. So that'd be super cool if you go and check that out. But as for this episode, we're going to close it down here. Thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, remember, it is not just the story of video games. It is the story of you. Mm-hmm.